Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for an episode of the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin Molino-Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we have CBI's very own Dr. Kaylee Bantam. In addition to several years of direct clinical experience with children and families as a psychologist, Dr. Bantam has participated in and led extensive training related to psychological first aid, crisis intervention, suicidality, and trauma in childhood. Dr. Bantam serves as co-clinical director of Cognitive Behavior Institute, as well as the co-director of CBI's Center for Education. So Dr. Keeley Bantam, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're very excited to have you. Thanks for having me, Erin. Kevin? So could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you became interested in psychology and how you became interested in childhood mental health? Sure. So I um, initially trans or chose to go into healthcare. Um, I always kind of had that desire to do so um, right from the beginning. I originally went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, go Bobcats, um, for physical therapy. And then my first year, I took um, several kind of psychology and sociology classes, and I really um, fell in love with sort of the behavioral health perspective of well-being and um, switched, basically. So I made the leap there my first year of training in undergraduate. And then in terms of getting kind of caught up in more of the, the childhood aspect of mental health, um, in my training experiences there, I worked a lot in um, the psychology labs at, at on OU's campus and um, worked closely with a, a couple uh, different psychologists and professors there in their research labs and found the interest really in that kind of child psychology realm and then more specifically um, in the school settings as well, uh, providing kind of treatments and interventions in, in those settings. So then when I went to look for graduate school, it led me to Duquesne and their school psychology program. Well, it sounds like you definitely enjoyed your training. Could you talk a little bit more about your experiencing experience, excuse me, and learning about and treating youth suicidality specifically? Sure. So um, in my training experiences, so after graduating grad school, and part of my training uh, processes kind of in those final years, I worked with uh, UPMC's Western Psychiatric Institute and clinic. And as part of those training um, opportunities, I was allowed to kind of do different rotations in different settings. Uh, so community-based health, outpatient services, more intensive services, and really kind of serve the population across the lifespan in terms of the, the pediatric range, so to speak. So I guess not across the lifespan, but in that pediatric continuum. So early childhood, and then all the way through um, kind of those older adolescents. And in those experience, I, I really had a lot of um, exposures to a lot of kids that were suffering and, and, and really kind of dealing with um, a lot of the risk factors that are associated with suicidal thoughts and behaviors, um, having a lot of struggles with kind of depression and anxiety, trauma. Um, and then I also uh, found myself really drawn to um, the crisis response team. So another piece that led me kind of down that path and that interest is um, I trained and was a part of the response team for the hospital. So uh, I did the internal staff training for our program, 
But then um, I was also part of a team that did community response. And so kind of all over Western Pennsylvania, our team would provide postvention following um, kind of significant events. And I, I was often involved in that team and we had to respond to deaths by suicide, particularly locally at the time, we were having a lot kind of in the school settings and associated with that population. Uh, and I got to see really how families were impacted, communities were impacted. Um, and it just really drew me to kind of then further pursue just my own professional development in the area and training in that domain um, to, to serve that population. A big population of individuals who watch our podcast are clinicians, master's level clinicians and doctorate level clinicians in a private practice setting. You know, one of the things I think about early on in my career is dealing with just clients in general was scary as hell. Uh, and then throw in suicidality. Could you speak to a little bit about your first experiences on a personal level with uh, when you're coming out and dealing with those individuals the first time? So those that are listening and maybe feel uncomfortable can kind of feel you know, they're not alone. And then, you know, where do you build from there to get more confidence in in your approach? Absolutely. So I think um, in terms of, of, of that particular continuum of behavior, so you have a, a, a large range, it's complex, right? So initially our um, treatment approach to dealing with suicidal thoughts and behavior comes from more of, we treat depression with kind of this risk management side of always screening for suicide, checking in, safety planning, those types of things. Um, but when we look at the literature and we look at more of, of the evidence surrounding kind of conceptualization of suicide, there's a lot more to it. So there's reason to be afraid. There's a reason why it's hard for clinicians. It's not an easy task. Um, there's lots of different factors that we have to consider in terms of, of treating multiple um, domains across kind of the continuum and the, and the larger, broader concept of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, and so I, I think it, it, it's very common. We've all gone through that. I know myself. Um, I think the biggest one of one of the memories I have is, is really kind of dealing with the um, crisis management of a family that's in distress when when someone has come to them and or a child come to them exhibited some sort of ideation, whether they're just saying I want to kill myself in terms of the thought piece are more of the behaviors where they have exhibited some sort of self-injury um, and really having to manage your own emotion because you can get really young ones um, in the office. I, I think one of my first ones that I had dealt with in terms of patients that I think was most surprising with me was a 12 year old who would come into the office um, and she had cut herself in terms of her, her arms and her parents were very, very concerned, of course, and given her age and sort of trying to assess and understand her, um, how she got there. What was the triggering event? Really what brought her to have those feelings that she thought that this was an option? Um, and I'll be honest, I, I, I really didn't even know where to start. There's a, there's a lot of pieces there. So I think trying to focus in on your own emotions and, and recognizing that it is difficult is huge as a clinician. And, and sitting, with, sitting with families and kids and that, hey, like this is hard and we're going to navigate it together really is, is, a, is the biggest first step and kind of recognizing that it's difficult for everyone um, in that way. That's excellent advice. Um, could you, one of the trainings that you have upcoming, you're going to be talking about suicidality as an epidemic. And could you tell, as well as some myths surrounding that, could you tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about suicidality as an epidemic? Absolutely. So um, in terms of 
the statistics, so the CDC in the United States specifically, um, we have seen an increase in suicide rates by 35% in the last two decades um, within our, our country here. Um, particularly as it relates to our younger population, we have seen a significant increase um, to the point where it's the second leading cause of death in the age range between uh, 10 and 34 years old. Um, so that's a, a big deal <laughs> in, in terms of those pieces. We've also seen a significant increase in the last uh, roughly 10 years as well in terms of um, it us seeing more suicidal behaviors in that younger population. So that 10 to 19. So now you're having um, an increase in attempts, increase in ideations, increase in sort of the self-injurious behaviors in that younger population. So not only are we seeing the numbers increase, um, so the, the prevention pieces that are in play are, are obviously not working, um, but all, we also have just increased sort of uh, factors related to exasperating those circumstances, right? So um, we have the pandemic, obviously, right now, um, that's certainly creating financial hardship, social isolation, other kind of ramping up those risk factors, uh, social media, cyberbullying, those types of things. And unfortunately, as a country, we haven't um, really, I think, addressed some of the, the funding and the, the essential needs to um, kind of attack suicide, so to speak. Um, as as a, an epidemic, um, we, we, it would be great to see sort of that increase in universal screening, access to better health care, access to better training for behavioral health clinicians. Um, I think a little bit of what I've spoken to already is that the, it's a complex issue. And so um, having that access to good training is, is really, really critical. Uh, the research in terms of evidence-based practices for treating suicide has just kind of come to fruition since about 2012. Um, so you're really not, there hasn't been that much research out there uh, to kind of guide practice. And, and so I think we, we, we're getting to where we are because of that uh, in terms of those limitations. So with regard to uh, interventions, as you describe, uh, what, what are interventions that have been shown to be helpful? What is not helpful? Because I know even from just my own dissertation, evidence-based practice, what that means to different people uh, is variable, uh, and then how that's taught, it's variable. So I'm wondering what's out there, and I, you did say it's limited, but what is out there shown to be helpful? And then beyond that, what have you found to be most helpful in some of the cases you're doing uh, more in more recent times? Um, in terms of the actual research that has been done, so in the past, a lot of it was um, looking at um, post-suicide uh, circumstances, talking to the environmental pieces and the family members and, and sort of trying to take that lens from, from that piece to figure out how did a person get to the point where they wanted to commit suicide. Now, um, we are looking more so at survivors of suicide, which has been a big movement, I think, in the research piece to guide better practices. When we look at the evidence and what's being able to, to build the research, DBT is huge in terms of uh, skill building. CBT as well are really kind of our, our hallmarks around that skill development piece. And so when it comes to, to suicide treatment, I, I think it's multifaceted is the, the one thing that I have learned in, in, in my experiences. I think I, am, I, like many other clinicians, came into it as someone comes to my office for depression, I'm screening for suicidality and, and trying to kind of manage safety. 
Um, but really having the lens of constantly monitoring for risk and protective factors as it relates to suicide, because the research shows us that you can actually have suicidal um, behaviors, whether that's thoughts, um, injuries, behaviors, any other kind of in that realm without having depressive symptoms. Um, and so really kind of thinking about just the multifaceted approach and looking at risk and protective factors, how can we intervene to build the protective factors and kind of mitigate the risk factors that we're able to do? Then how do we use the evidence-based practices such as DBT and CBT for skill building, for emotional regulation, for some of those um, triggering, triggering events that we commonly see lead to a suicidal crisis? Um, and kind of in, then integrating, especially for our youth, the family support system, if, that, if that's a protective factor as well. So I think the biggest thing is using what we have out there in terms of evidence-based practices and assessment measures and doing more of a comprehensive approach um, to just suicidal behavior as a whole, that, that we're not just treating one slice of the pie because it's far more complex than that. And that's why it's been difficult to research as well. It's just the complexities around it. You mentioned triggers and risk factors, and one of the things in your your, your own professional history, you worked at uh, at Tice doing a lot of trauma, and that factors into uh, suicidality. What has been your experience uh, with the pandemic, and do you see that as traumatic to kids, or do you conceptualize it differently? How do you look at that? Yeah, so I, I think um, in terms of, of thinking through risk factors, especially related to the pandemic side of things, so we know that existing mental health is already a risk factor for suicide. Um, and so then we take kiddos who have potentially already have mood, anxiety, trauma related uh, presentations in terms of that piece. And we pile on a compounding factor really of different stressors. So we have financial hardships in the family, we have isolation because they're not with their peers in terms of activities and things, is that you just continue to have the risk factors build and build and build. And really the, the balance of the risk and the protector protective factors are, are key in creating that resiliency. And so unfortunately with the pandemic, it's it's been hard to foster those protective factors and really um kind of to mitigate some of those risk pieces that we do see. And then of course, with speaking more to the trauma side of things, um, trauma's risk for so many different things and has so much complexities of its own um, that I think that that in itself could be just one target of, of kind of risk prevention for suicide um, as well. As clinicians, uh, I know you have this training coming up. Can you tell us just a little bit about uh, what that training is, what you what we can expect to accomplish, and how we can come out of it feeling more secure as clinicians uh, uh, and confident about our, how we interact with our clients and helping them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have two coming up specific uh, to the domain of suicidality. So the the first one I, in April is is focused mostly on kind of that prevention and assessment piece. So it's a two hour training. I really want to focus on um, understanding risk and protective factors, how to do more objective assessment associated with that. So I'll discuss some some measures that are out there that that provide guidance for clinicians um, to look at those factors. Also then um, further assessment of actual suicidal thoughts and behaviors and intentions um, and providing some guidance around clinical interviewing and measures associated with that. So really kind of helping, my goal for that training would be to help clinicians be able to conceptualize the multiple factors that we have to consider when we have someone presenting um, with suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And then the second training that I'm doing in May is more focused on um, telehealth considerations. So if you are, 
already treating um, uh, someone in terms of the pediatric population uh, that is exhibiting the suicidal thoughts and behaviors, what are some important considerations we have to have in this virtual world beyond sort of our, our typical uh, treatment modalities? Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us and for being uh, here with us on this week's episode. We were very excited to have you and we hope that you'll uh, join us again sometime so that we can further continue uh, to learn about the trainings that you'll be bringing to CBI, uh, both for kids and then also diagnoses related. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, a lot. thanks to our listeners for turning, tuning into this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. We hope you all stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast. Check out our website at cbicenterforeducation.com for more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events.